Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Sonny Magania, who's joined us today to share a little bit more about his recently released book, Learning in the Zones, which came out on July of 11th of this year. Uh, and so Sonny is an ed researcher, author, and consultant, and is someone that I'm just really excited uh, to have join us today from the great state of Washington. Am I right? That's right. And uh, we're going to get an opportunity to learn a little bit more about his work. Um, but before we get to that, Sonny, for those that don't know you, can you give us a little bit of your backstory in education? Yeah, you bet. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. It's a, a pleasure to chat with you and uh, great to be on your program. Uh, so I'm a simple teacher. At the end of the day, I, I, I'm a biology teacher that's just trying to figure stuff out. And I've been trying to figure stuff out for five decades. The stuff that I'm trying to figure out really is the connection between pedagogy, technology, learning. Those three factors have loomed large in my career since the 1980s when I first started teaching. And just a little bit of detail to that background, my very first year teaching, I uh, was a, a, an AP biology teacher. And that was the year that Apple, it was in 1983, and Apple came out with some personal computers that were uh, donated to a school where I was uh, teaching and researching. And it just, it struck me that there was a, there's all this hype about this technology. We bought into this kind of digital promise that just having digital tools will automatically lead to transformational learning. And I was confounded when the reality didn't match the hype, when the digital reality didn't match the digital promise that just simply having technology is going to lead to improved pedagogy, improved learning outcomes, improved engagement. And the very first study that I did was a study on student engagement with, I think we used an Apple IIe and a software called the Oregon Trail. Remember that? I'm familiar. And I died uh, probably a visitary <laughs> many times halfway across our, our nation. Uh, That's what most people remember. <laughs> from that most people remember how they died playing on the Oregon Trail. But what did, did they what did folks really learn? What was the concept? What was the the meaningful learning journey that students went on uh, by engaging in that particular game? And that was a question that I had. Now at first our, our study was just looking at engagement. How engaged were students in the experience? And at first, we, the other researchers and I coded the engagement as very high because these kids had never seen an Apple II computer before. They'd never used software. They were mesmerized by the novelty of the experience. And then something really prophetic happened. Their engagement dropped significantly after uh, just a couple of weeks. Their engagement just really dropped down because the novelty of that experience was not sustainable. So within less than 10 days, student engagement went from high to low. And that just changed how I thought about things because you, you can only have a, a, a first time experience once. And so that pattern has been played over again and again and again over the last 40 years where students get some new technology and their the novelty the, the newness of that experience artificially heightens their engagement in the experience but over a short period of time that engagement drops off because they can't have 
that same level of the, you know, the kind of the new car uh, experience, you know, the new car smell, that's not sustainable. <laughs> so I liken, you know, student engagement with, with new tech. It's kind of a used car smell. After a while, it's going to get stale. That confounded me and it confounded the other research because it, that reality did not live up to the hype about technology being automatically transformational. And that kind of started me off on a journey of researching what is the relationship or is there a relationship between teaching, learning, and technology? And that's what I've been uncovering for the past five decades. Wow. Well, really grateful to have you here uh, today to share in what we can encapsulate in a podcast episode, right? Some of that yeah. learning over the course of that time frame. And that certainly is a conversation we're having within our state here in Nebraska at the service agency level, but really at in every and all levels uh, is looking at those relationships between those pieces because there is, I feel like at this moment in time, a little bit of a next step in the evolution of those respective entities kind of coming more together than maybe yep. they've been previously. Uh, and so I maybe before we even get into the book, or maybe it'll be a segue into mm -hmm. that particular text, uh, I would ask then, because you framed your backstory uh, as starting in 1983, what would you just broadly say has been a little bit of that inching of those pieces mm -hmm. together over time? Well, you know, um, we now know um, a lot more about the role that technology should play in enhancing learning. So since that time, you know, again, everything was brand new. Everything was uh, novel. And so even early research questions were kind of novel and, and, and less sophisticated. The questions that we were asking were, hey, let's add this technology and see what happens. Like, let's continue doing our practice, continue doing the pedagogy that we've been engaged in for arguably 130 years, 150 years. Let's add technology to it and see what happens. And so, you know, the technologies changed. It went from individual PCs to Palm Pilots, laptops, interactive whiteboards, all these digital devices. Let's add this and see what happens. And I've been struggling, I've been struggling with that question for a long time because it's not the technology that makes the difference. It's how it's used and by whom. So I can sum up all my research in a very, very simple rock and roll metaphor because I'm also a musician and I play in a rock and roll band and use a lot of musical metaphors in my work. So here's, here it is. When it comes to modern teaching and learning, high-impact pedagogy is the melody, and high-impact technology use adds the harmonies, and together you get great music. I absolutely love that. That is a really <laughs> beautiful way to think about the uh, the nature of how these two, the interplay between these two mm -hmm. pieces. And so, with that lens, as you obviously felt passionate about this topic enough to not only research it, but then to try to encapsulate that uh, in your book. Can you give us a little bit of the why yeah. and the story that, that, yeah, that led you to write on this topic? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I had all these questions. I had tons of questions from 1983 on because I kept getting, I don't know, skeptical. I, I suppose I had a, a healthy skepticism about you know, the actual impact. And I didn't know the impact. So I sought to really understand what impact this was having. Then I went on to got an advanced degree. I got my master's degree in education technology, researching the use of digital tools for global service projects and worked with an organization called iEARN, which is the International Education and Resource Network, connecting kids in my state of Washington with kids in uh, Israel and Argentina and then the Soviet Union, believe it or not, the, you know, in the 1990s, we had a Soviet-US exchange project. And so I was little by little understanding it's not the technology that really matters. It's the human connection. In fact, I can 
answer that the question about the why uh, by giving another little metaphor. If anyone decides or, or is interested, you can just search what is the definition of technology? The Oxford Dictionary definition of technology is this, knowledge that's applied to solve a problem. That's what a technology is. Technology is knowledge that is transferred into different contexts to solve some problem. Now, we usually think of that kind of knowledge as scientific knowledge. So scientific knowledge is applied to a problem. So if with that in mind, I think we need to make a, a significant shift from ed tech to heart and head tech, because that's the technology that matters the most. The passion of our students, the cognitive capacity of our students, and combining passion and purpose. So when heart and head tech are unleashed, the results are astounding. So that really is my big takeaway, is that when students use different tools to connect to new content, to leverage their prior knowledge, to apply that knowledge, to learn self-regulation strategies, to be a contributive member of a learning community, that's when those technologies provide a remarkable value added to the experience. And that's what led me to continue to do research. So I got a, my doctorate. I, I studied with Dr. Marzano. He's still a, a dear friend and a mentor. And uh, I learned uh, techniques from him, including meta-analysis and, uh, and writing. <laughs> so Bob always said, Sonny, you got a great idea. Write it down and hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what led me to this is that I, I just kept uncovering new things and Bob's tutelage and, and guidance was just so dear to me that I continued to do so kind of as a testament of our friendship and a testament to the body of work that he's given us, the gifts that he has given us and continues to give us. So that's what kind of drives me to you know, continue to pursue seeking the true nature between technology, pedagogy, learning. Wow. I have myself through blogs or other efforts found, so I was a former English teacher and mm. what I always thought of as the a practice of writing was a way to capture your ideas and put them on a page. But yeah. there's also the layered, as I've gotten into it more, as I've gotten older, there's another layer to it where you get to explore your own ideas with greater depth because you're really at, on some level, just having a, a very deep conversation with yourself. With oneself. It's yeah. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as a writer, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's and it's an odd thing. And it's hard to, to really, um, as you said, express to folks. But I, uh, at some point, ideas start to emerge as you press into them that deeply. And so learning in the zone yeah. and the seven habits of meta learners, maybe when did these seven habits start to bubble up or, or frame that for us, I guess, in your process? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, on the writing process, when one is engaged in composition, the act of composing one's thoughts in whatever form that may take, in writing, in music, I compose music. So when I when I write a song, when I write a book, when I write a research report, when I write an essay, the act of composition makes one's thoughts known to oneself, often for the first time. That's a powerful idea. Absolutely. And it's an idea worth sharing. Composition makes one's thoughts known to oneself, often for the first time. So I started a writing journey with uh, Dr. Marzano and uh, his wonderful work, The Art and Science of Teaching. Um, I felt needed a modern contextualization, you know, because in a, in a technology-rich environment, how do the art and science of teaching principles vary? How, do, how can they be transformed? How are they changed? What, 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 are, what are the things you can do with technologies to enhance that framework? 
So the first book I wrote was called Enhancing the Art and Science of Teaching with Technology with Bob Marzano as my co-author. That led to the application of researching that, you know, in technology enhancing best practice. And the results were pretty outstanding. The schools where I implemented uh, this framework saw tremendous gains in academic achievement that was measured by some common assessment, like uh, final summative examination, statewide testing, you know, uh, typical measures of academic achievement, in addition to classroom measures of achievement. And that was pretty unusual that we saw gains both in teacher developed uh, assessments and institutional or state generated assessments. There was an alignment that, that we hadn't quite seen before. Well, that got me on a kick and I thought, okay, let's dive into this further. What's really going on here? Uh, so I codified the best of the best, like I took the top practices, that work and merged some of Professor John Hattie's work from Visible Learning, as well as my own research and try to, you know, braid them into like a kind of a, a, a braid. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. How do these things all work together? And then I wrote uh, my second book called Disruptive Classroom Technologies. And I introduced a framework for learning called the T3 framework. The T3 stands for the three phases of learning, translational learning, transformational learning, and transcendent learning. So now I'm taking the idea of learning and I'm making a, I want to provide a more precise language to discuss how learning happens in the human animal. We first take new information and translate it from some external source into our internal schema, our internal cognitive filter system. Often it stays there until you get a test or some quiz and then you regurgitate it back out and you typically measure how well students can retrieve knowledge or recall information from shorter term memory systems. But that's a very limited view of learning, isn't it? Learning and schooling should be a lot more than just memorizing old knowledge. Especially in an era when you have Google. Right. I think we have a system that privileges memorizing old knowledge. And so students sit really dispassionately exercising their short-term memory systems so that way they can recall what they need to recall on some assessment and not forget what they've memorized until after the test. That's woefully insufficient at preparing students for the world of work now and the world of work in the future. Transformational learning involves two uh, principles that I've developed called production and contribution. And in production, students produce representations of their knowledge. They take what they've internalized and transform it into some external representation expressing what they know, what they can do, and how they came to know what they know and be able to do what they do, making their learning journeys known to themselves, often for the first time. So the, the notion of composition, I've melded into this idea of production and contribution. That allows students to more deeply understand the content that they've memorized. The third stage is transcendent, and that's when we go kind of above and beyond the current teaching practice and have students transfer their knowledge into new contexts. They use their knowledge specifically as a tool to solve new and future learning problems. Knowledge is a technology. So heart and head tech applied to solve some learning problem is, I think, the most important technology we have at our disposal right now. So that was really kind of a, a crucible to figure out, okay, so that's what teachers do. So T3 is really a book for teachers, or, or the Disruptive Classroom Technology is a book for teachers to learn about effective pedagogy in the modern era. But 
there's another layer. Like, what do kids do as a result of what teachers do? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's more important. <laughs> you know, you got, but it's a sequence. You can't, you can't really take something out of sequence and still have it make sense. So this new book, Learning in the Zone, is an extension of the T3 framework in its application. So I've been researching since that book came out, since I think Disruptive Classroom Technologies came out in 2017. And I've been working with school systems all over the world, implementing the T3 framework. And the results have been outstanding. You know, the, the T3 effect sizes, uh, I'm gonna throw some numbers at you here, as an effect size of 1.6 and higher. And an effect size of 1.6 is gargantuan. Right. That's an extra, extra large uh, effect. 1.6 is equivalent to a quadrupling of learning. And it's not just we saw this once. We saw this compounding over multiple iterations. That research was recently peer-reviewed and inducted into the University of Oxford's Research Encyclopedia for Education. So it's a very reliable model that I think it's one of the most reliable uh, models with technology that exists today. Uh, so we can get like extraordinary gains in student achievement by implementing T3. But was there anything beyond that? And that's when I came up with, yeah, there's certain habits that we saw from the research. When students exhibit these learning habits, that's correlated with explosive growth in learning. And that's the evolution of learning in the zone. That's the zone where learners, hearts and heads connect and they go beyond their expectations. They have optimal learning performance. And there are seven specific habits that I call meta-learning habits that are correlated with very, very large gains in learning. Oh, okay. And so part of the backstory- <laughs> Sorry, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Part of the backstory uh, for those that, that don't know this was Dave Burgess connected Sonny and I and said that we should chat and get the opportunity to learn from one another. And I, I certainly speak primarily from my own time in the classroom, but what, what you're sharing there lands with me in the sense that I tend to think about instructional design from the educator standpoint as being, we're, we're learning experience designers, right? And so I, I heard a little bit of that in what you were yeah. sharing as far as the focus of book number two, right? Like let's, let's help teachers be able to design those spaces right. for then students to be able to step into those spaces and they're going to need a certain set of skills to pick it up and run with it. I'll say it like this, that feels familiar to me mm. um, in what you're sharing there, because it, it seems that that is where learning in the zone is going, yeah. that once we give yeah. students the opportunity in the technology, now what skills do they need to be able to pick it up and run with it? Is that mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you nailed it. That, that's it. What, what are the things that we can equip students with so that when they leave our school systems, we are confident that they'll be highly effective, contributive citizens of our democracy, right? It's tools and skills. But I went a little bit further in, you know, studying some uh, ed psych and cognitive psychology and uh, even even neuroscience and even metaphysics, really, in this book and learning of the zone, because we all know what the zone is, right? But it's hard to describe. That's it's it's <laughs> it's yeah, fun. like the moment when the light comes on or we can tell that you're in the classroom and it just it's how I've described it as it just rings like there's yeah. just a moment where everybody is just attuned to what's going on in there in a way that um, speaks to them and, and learning is palpable. It, it flows. Yeah. There's a flow, you know, and music, as I said, I'm a musician. When when we're in a good jam, we're in a groove, man. And everybody feels the groove. You're on the beat. You know, the drummer, the rhythm section keeps you, uh, keeps everybody on the on the beat. And we listen to each other 
you know, the essence of good improvisation is listening. And then adding space, adding to the conversation, not having monologues, but dialogues musically. The same happens in classrooms. When a classroom is in the zone, the language shifts or the, the conversation shifts from a monologue, one teacher doing all the talking, to dialogues where students are engaged in deep discursive understanding of the content, talking it out, composing their thoughts on the fly by thinking and generating and testing claims in the moment and then producing representations. So I think, you know, humans are creatures of habits. We are habitual creatures. We like our habits. We, we like to do things. We like routines. We're, we're very comfortable with habits. Um, what I found is that some habits are very constructed, others not so much. And over the last you know, few years, I'm afraid that many students have developed poor learning habits. So I've come up with a concept called meta-learning. And in fact, the, the subtitle of the book, Learning in the Zone, is called The Seven Habits of Meta-Learning. And meta-learning, I think, is a concept in education systems whose time has come. Meta-learning is the process of learning how to learn, how to unlearn, and how to relearn learning how to learn unlearn and relearn is an essential life skill for students leaving our school systems and entering a world of work and a, and a social context that is marked by more volatility chaos ambiguity uncertainty than any other generation has ever faced so it's not enough for kids just to know a bunch of old stuff they need to have the capacity to make sense of that stuff uh, discern truth from fiction, reality from disinformation, and have habits of, of learning, meta-learning habits, to be able to learn for a lifetime. I, I think it's an essential campaign. <laughs> yeah. As you were talking there, I in my mind was going, this is discernment and then discerning. Yes. Yeah, and you're exactly right. Uh, yep. um, and I understand, especially uh, over the past few years, as and we, we have advocated for it in our state. So to make a brief connection to some initiatives that listeners might be familiar with in our social studies courses with inquiry approaches to instruction in that space and in the sciences and, and the push for civil discourse and yeah, listening uh, to one another. And yep. so I love that. Could I ask maybe, um, you know, we probably don't have time to get into all seven of the, the habits today, but it would be really terrific to get maybe a little bit of a taste, sure. you know, one or two so that folks could get yeah. a, a sense of what ground the book covers and then could mm -hmm. maybe seek that out thereafter to learn about um, the rest of them or maybe overview of the seven first and sure. then we'll dial it in on a couple. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, there, there are seven practices that start off as strategies, you know, habits start as strategies that we spend a lot of time focusing on. Um, so I've developed a series of tools to help learners develop these, these strategies. And then over time, those strategies become habits, the things we do with a higher level of automaticity, like driving a stick shift. When you first drive a stick shift, it takes a lot of thought to, you know, be conscious of, you know, your four appendages moving in harmony. Over time, you do it without thinking much about it. It's not that you're unconscious, but you're not spending a lot of time thinking about that particular habit. These seven meta-learning habits are like that. At, at first, they start off as strategies. They take a certain amount of will and intentionality to develop. But then as you use these strategies over time, they will become routines and habits that we do with automaticity. The first habit is 
commit to your own mastery learning intention. You know, it's one thing to have a learning goal. It's an entirely different thing for students to have their own personal mastery goals that they commit to. Uh, so making a commitment to a learning intention means that, you know, you're connecting the head and the heart and nothing is going to stop the learner from achieving that intention. So that's the first meta learning habit is creating one's own goals. I think too often in schools, kids rely on somebody else telling them what their learning goal is and telling them how well they're, they're doing at attaining those learning goals. At some point, the learner is going to have to learn how to establish their own mastery goals and commit to them. Come hell or high water, there's nothing that's going to stop me <laughs> from, from achieving this. And, you know, uh, that's, that's an essential first step. In the book, I talk about my own journey as a musician. So you know, how did I learn how to learn? You know, I learned how to learn by learning how to play rock and roll music. Learning how to play the guitar was hard. You know, it's it, you got to want it. I, I had to commit to learning certain songs and engage in the discipline of making time to engage in the practice. The second habit, once you commit, once you've got your own goal, and this is that's really the basis of our country is self-determination. Uh, that's a that's such a beautiful idea that humans have the capacity to engage in self-determinism, be what we want to be, be all that we can be, and achieve things that are our own design. If we can conceive it and we can believe it, we can achieve it, as Martin Luther King said so famously. And it's true. Our country is based on the on the notions of of liberty and self-determinism. Well, how do we develop self-determinism? We got to have kids learn how to establish meaningful mastery goals and then commit to them. That's that's step number one. Step number two then is self regulation, making self regulation a habit. I see you're smiling. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> I some of the things that that I would work on with my students in the classroom would be trying to think about utilizing the learning space, for example, for your particular task, like what you're working yeah. on at a given uh, point in time. And so this maybe aligns a little bit with your first point in that is this something I need to pair up with a partner? And so therefore mm -hmm. there might be a location where that makes more sense uh, or do I need to focus? And there would even be desks facing a wall, uh, not to send anyone to a far you know, region mm -hmm. of the class, but because maybe that's where the activity best plays out. And I'm thinking of a student named Josh who I had the opportunity to support in class once where he kind of went from a group of four and then found that he wasn't very productive there to a group of two. And then he kind of moved himself to that single station four times whenever he needed to work on independent tasks. And in his reflection that he said to me, uh, he goes, and then I just like put away my phone. And I, and it, it was really funny to me to hear it out loud. And I actually have it in a video. And, and so I relive that conversation with him sometimes. But it's to your point that, so we gave him, gave him the opportunity, we empowered him to be in those, those spaces. And then once he understood the degree of control that he had over a goal that he was actively pursuing, he then self-regulated his own cell phone use because it's not up to me as a teacher necessarily to do that for him. It's to hopefully give him experiences and meaningful work enough that he starts to recognize the need for that himself. See, that's it. That's a beautiful articulation of self-regulation in practice. It starts off as a strategy, but too often I think that that um, this concept of self-regulation um, is not given enough attention. Humans are very capable of self-regulating ourselves. 
You know, we just need to have the practice and we need strategies that help us engage in self-regulation and engage in the discipline of self-regulation. Discipline is freedom. You know, when we get, it sounds like Josh found the joy in discipline and was freed from the distractions that kept him from achieving his aspirations, his goals, learning goals. So that is a, that is the uh, another essential meta-learning habit is learning how to regulate our emotions and our effort and seeing that progress is directly caused by emotional and effort regulation. So I've developed a series of tools and resources to help students engage in that practice by generating their own feedback loops that they're the source of the feedback. The students become the source of the feedback. The loop comes back to them and they can see that when they engage in practices that help them regulate their emotion and their effort, progress results. It's a given. It's going to happen. You just have to stick with it. And, you know, and doing it in a way, it's not just for, for the self, but really in our classrooms, we talked about civility and discourse. I, I think we've lost temperance in our our discourse. We need to be more temperate and not just tolerant of each other, but open to new ideas and engage in some civility, which takes self-regulation. It's easy to shout out and make a mess of things and, you know, make a lot of noise and bang around. You know, we did that as cave people, <laughs> you know, we don't need to do that anymore. We, you know, we're, we're a sophisticated society. And so we need students, we need learners to experience the discipline of self-regulation. So our highs aren't too high, our lows aren't too low. And we find that zone and stay with the groove. I really love all of that. And I would ask, because we got a chance to dive into two here, which is yeah. great. What, what other, um, maybe at a 30,000 foot view, are some of the other habits that we could yeah. bring people to? Leveraging make? prior knowledge. You know, the, the next habit is, is taking your own knowledge and using it as technology. Leveraging prior knowledge. Uh, doing it in a social way. We're contributive learners. You know, so I, I've developed a theory of learning called contributive learning theory, where we learn best when we contribute uh, with others. Another habit is categorizing, taking our knowledge and putting it into classification systems so we can categorize, connect, and extend knowledge artifacts. Uh, and then generating feedback loops where we can see how the learning that we're engaged in in the moment connects to our bigger picture. You know, the, the big why that we all have. Maybe somebody wants to be, you know, a cardiac surgeon. How you keep that big picture in mind and then think, how the tasks that you're doing at the moment help you achieve your larger aspirational goals. See, the system of, of learning in the zone helps build capacity. And I'm afraid that our education system has shifted too far to the side of building dependency, where students are dependent on somebody else telling them what to memorize, how well they're memorizing it, and how well they're behaving as they're memorizing what they need to memorize. This is about building capacity. I'll say one more thing. I, I have the great pleasure of working with Professor John Hattie, whose work is, you know, superordinate. He his the, the visible learning model is the most reliable and largest body of research. And I've been, you know, really fortunate to work with Professor Hattie. He's he's reviewed my work. He actually wrote the foreword to Learning in the Zone. And uh, I'd say he he called me the Eddie Van Halen of learning. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> That's quite the compliment. Which is awesome. It's quite a compliment coming from Professor Hattie. So folks will have to read the book in order to get the joke why he called me the, the Eddie Van Halen of learning. But, you know, our systems can improve radically by making subtle changes. 
these changes are not huge, overarching, earth-shattering shifts. They're subtle. And there's real beauty in subtlety uh, of practice. So when we make some subtle nuance changes, not a heavy lift at all, it just reframe our perspective to build learning capacity. And then we can all find our zone. Wow, Sonny, that's really uh, speaks to my heart also. I, I love James Clear's Atomic Habits. And mm-hmm. that, that reminds me a little bit of the 1% that he advocates for in that particular text. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, he references a story with, uh, I believe it was the English cycling team, where they just set out to try to make little 1% incremental mm-hmm. improvements. Mm-hmm. And it's the compound interest across right. those uh, as a collective that over time led them to go from being a very underperforming cycling team on the international scale uh to becoming champions and i prescribe to that now yeah on a personal level but i appreciate that idea as it is articulated by james clear and see that being present in what you're talking about there too and and there's a universality to one percent gains Mm -hmm. that don't have to be tied to a specific content area or materials yeah agreed expertise comes in very thin slices appreciate the thin slice and then just try one thing. So, so for readers, I thought I would suggest get the book, Learning in the Zone, try one thing. Just do a little bit at a time. Break it down. If, you, if you're not ready to do the entire strategy, break it down. Work backwards. Say, what do we need to do first? What do I need to do second? Expertise comes in very thin slices. So it's the journey that matters, not the destination. And Sonny, I was going to have us do a call to action and a parting message. And you nailed it without me even having a problem. <laughs> That's kind of me. That's kind of me, Andrew. You nailed it. Well, Sonny, it, uh, gosh, I say it every week, 30 minutes goes so incredibly yeah. fast. Um, but I certainly want to say thank you so much for taking the time to craft uh, learning in the zone so that we get uh, the opportunity to learn from you and, and to pick up some of those slices and hopefully implement those uh, in our own practices or for those that are in support of educators, uh, you know, to, to point them in those directions uh, on behalf of kids, on behalf of learners. Uh, and so thank you for also your time uh, in sharing today to point people to that and to help us all think a little differently about the work that we have the uh, good fortune to do each and every day. So really appreciate all your advocacy research uh, and for taking some time for us. Yeah, oh, it's a privilege. Thanks very much, Andrew. I really appreciate it.